Well, good morning again to you. Uh, my name is Eli Finley, and I'm the youth pastor here at the church. So if we haven't met, hello. It's great to be with you this weekend. Uh, I love this church family. I love worshiping with you. I love getting to be able to preach for you. Uh, this weekend, Pastor Charlie is out on vacation, a much-needed vacation. And so I'm going to preach for us today out of James chapter 1. And so if you were here on Mother's Day weekend just a few weeks ago, I also preached out of James 1, and I preached kind of the beginning of the chapter. Well, we're going to end out the chapter this week. So I'm going to preach on James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there, you're welcome to do so. Uh, let me give us some background on James, just catch us up on the speed uh, so that we kind of know what's going on as we approach the text this morning. Uh, James is a letter of the Bible written by a man named James, and he's writing to persecuted Jewish Christians uh, across a pretty large region, most likely Southern Asia. And his goal throughout the entire letter is to remind them of the foundational truths that they believe when they say they're going to follow Jesus. So, so when we today as Christians say that we give our life to Christ, that he is my Lord, that I believe in Jesus, I believe he was who he says he was, there is some responsibility of some beliefs and foundational core things that we believe that we have to cling to, that we decide, that we choose on, right? And so the core thing that James is going to address today in the passage that we're going to read is our relationship with Scripture. So let me pray for us again, and then we're going to go into the Word. Sound like a plan? Let's do it. Let me pray for us. Father God, I pray that you would just give us an open heart, willing ears, uh, a willing mind, and a willing spirit to hear what you have to say this morning and to allow it to transform us, to shape us. Jesus, we trust you to do this. We trust you to transform us in the best way possible into your image. We love you. We trust you. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Let me read James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25 for us this morning. It says, My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, he goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person that he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. So James is talking in this passage about our relationship with the Word, with the Scriptures. And so as we approach this text this morning, I want to tell you a little bit of something about myself. Uh, my background in ministry is camp ministry. So I used to work for a summer camp called Fuge Camps. And actually, our, our student ministry is about to go to that camp in like two or three weeks, and I'm really excited to. Uh, we go to a place called Glorieta, New Mexico. And uh, many of you have no idea where that's at or what it even is, and that's okay. Um, but that's actually the location where I got reconnected with Fellowship of the Rockies with, their, with the youth group um, through that camp ministry, and that's how I ended up coming to be an intern and stuff. So you guys, Fellowship of the Rockies, we all have a relationship with that camp, whether you knew it or not. Um, but it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful time. And, and so what happens at Fuge Camps is this. It's, it's like a, a nationwide camp thing, and they have a bunch of different locations. What happens is they get a group of like 25 to 35, maybe 40 uh, young adults, 20 to 30-something-year-old men and women to come and to serve students for a few weeks of their summer. That's the goal. And so you show up to camp, and you don't know anybody that you're around. You just show up, ready to do ministry. You don't know anybody. You don't know a thing about them. But then you do ministry together for like 15 or 16 hours a day, for like 50 or 60 days in a row. 
and you go from not knowing a thing about people to knowing way more than you are comfortable knowing about the people who are not your family, okay? You learn a lot about these people, and inevitably, over this time of camp, this 50 to 60-day period, inevitably, there will be a really sweet boy and a really sweet girl that love doing ministry together, and they end up like sort of being a couple. Now, there's a rule at camp. You cannot date other staffers while you're at camp. Once camp is over, you know, open season, do your thing. But, but at camp, you're not allowed to date each other, and the idea is that we're focused on the Lord, we're focused on ministry. Uh, but when you see someone who's just so focused on ministry, sometimes it's hard not to see how beautiful they are. So, so inevitably, there would be two or three kind of like couples, but not couples by the end of camp. And what would happen is our last session of camp, you know, the students, you know, they, they'd be there for a week and then we'd send them back home. And then what we would do is we would have to take down camp. So we'd pack up our classrooms and, and all this stuff. You know, there's a lot of games and stuff that we got to put away. It would take two or three days to like take down camp. And during that two or three day period, before everybody was gone from camp, these couples who aren't really couples would have to do something called a DTR, okay? So those three letters stand for determine the relationship. So they would have to sit down and have either a really awkward or a really nice conversation about whether or not they were going to pursue their relationship, right? They had to put boundaries on it. Is it worth going long distance for? All of those things. But they had to sit down and DTR. So that's, how does that apply to James 1? Let me explain it to you. This is what James is calling us into this morning. We have to have a little DTR with the scripture. As we approach the word this morning, we have to ask ourselves, what is our relationship with the word? What's our relationship to scripture? How is it moving and working within our lives? We need to have that conversation with ourselves, with God, and with the word. And so, as we move into this, we talk about what our relationship is with the scripture. It would help to know what uh, the Bible actually is. So many of us, it, it becomes very convoluted, okay? It becomes remarkably complex. So let me ask this question, and I'm going to ask for a raise of hands. I know that's uncomfortable in church, but you'll see why in a second. How many of you have a friend of yours that studies ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs for fun? Raise your hand. No one. Okay, maybe one. Love that. Here's the thing. We do very similar things all the time because this book was begun writing the beginning of this. The first five books of the Bible were being written 3,000 years ago by a, a Semitic culture, a Jewish culture that we don't know anything. About. We know a lot of things about it, but, but we don't experientially know anything about those people. This is written by a people in a language, in a culture completely separate from ours. So of course this book would be incredibly complex and difficult for us to understand. It's written in ways that we don't really write today. Does that make sense? If you're with me, say I am. Okay, so as we have come to the word, many of us have tried to simplify what it actually is. So, so I wanna, what I want to submit to you today is allow the Bible to be complex. Allow it to be complex. So what we have done is tried to create definitions of the word so that we can relate to it better. And in many ways, this is a healthy practice, and in some ways, it can be kind of damaging. So, so some of us have approached the word, and we've been taught simply that uh, the word of God is just a divine instruction manual that just kind of dropped out of heaven one day, and it just teaches us how to be moral. Okay. Or we've been taught that the Bible is just kind of like a, um, a theological textbook. It just kind of answers our questions about God and teaches us some spiritual words that we like sort of know what they mean, but we don't really know what they mean. We just know when to say them in context. 
or maybe we just see it as like a, a grab bag of really good one-liners, right? Or some really good wisdom that we can just apply to our lives. What I want to tell you today is that the Bible was not written to be any one of those single things. I want Jesus to speak to this this morning because Jesus talks about the definition of what Scripture truly is. In Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 48, this is Jesus on the Emmaus Road, and he gives us a picture for how we understand the Scriptures. It says this, Jesus told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So we'll pause there for just a moment. This is Jesus talking about the scriptures that he had in the day. Okay, so when he says uh, the law of Moses, he's talking about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Those are the things that he is talking about. That's the law he grew up with. He talks about the prophets, okay? These were the writings of, of like the major prophets, prophets, so like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and he would have actually considered some of like the historical books that we would understand as historical books today, he considered those prophets as well. So like Joshua and Judges, those books, that's what he's talking about. And then the last thing he says, the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Psalms, okay, Jesus didn't have like a cut and dry, you know, 150 Psalms right here in the middle of his Bible that was really easy to find. He's talking about the general writings of the Jewish people that he grew up reading. So a lot of them were Psalms of King David and those types of things, but it was probably also wisdom literature, like what Solomon had to say in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is really hard to read because it's so sad. And so Jesus is talking about all these books, and he's saying that they must be fulfilled. The next verse, verse 45, he says, Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he also said to them, This is what is written that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And so Jesus himself posits that this book is not a grab bag of one-liners. It's not a spiritual textbook or theological textbook. It is a story. It's a story for us. And that's how we need to approach the word of God. All of the Old Testament is pointing forward to Christ and all of the New Testament is pointing backwards to Christ. It is one grand story telling the redemption narrative of the forgiveness of all people that we might be made right with God. Amen? Amen. That's the word that we approach this morning. And lucky for us, James understands this and makes it a whole lot simpler for us to understand. And so simply, our relationship with God's word Yes, it can be very complex, but James gives us an easy starting point to it. In verses 19 through 21, that first little section we read, he says that we simply receive it. We receive the word. And so that is our first step in our relationship with God's word, is that we receive it. We accept it. What I mean by that is if you do not believe that this word, this book, is truth, then you do not have a relationship with it. If you don't put any trust in this book, then you don't have a relationship with it. We, our first step is to receive the word as it is, as it is truth and as authority of some sorts in our life. That's the first step that we take with the word is to see that it is authority and that it is truth. And so to illustrate this idea, James uses a gardening term. And the idea is that receiving the word of God is like planting a garden. The word is planted within us and it grows and we're discipled and it grows and the word grows within us like a garden. 
And so James, uh, all throughout his, his letter, all throughout his writing, he relies greatly on the teachings of Jesus. He relies greatly on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and he also paraphrases and uses a lot of Jesus' parables. So the parable that, G- that James is talking about here is uh, the parable of the sower that Jesus tells in, in Matthew 13, um, and Luke 8 is also in there. And so the parable goes like this. I'm going to simplify it greatly, but basically Jesus says this. He says there's a sower who's trying to plant a garden, and he plants seeds in a, a lot of different places. So in the first place that he plants it, it's like along the road, along a gravel road, and the birds come down and they eat the seeds, and so there's no fruit produced. And then the second place he plants it is like rocky ground that doesn't have deep soil. So none of the fruit could, could take root downward, and so none of the fruit was produced. The third place that he planted seed uh, was in a place that was kind of full of bushes and thorns, and those thorns choke out the seed, and there's no fruit that's produced. And then the last place that Jesus talks about the sower sowing seeds, that was a really hard tongue twister. The sower sowing seeds in this last spot was on fertile ground, and there was great fruit produced. And so the question we ask as we approach that parable is, how can the same seeds be planted in different places with different results? It was all about the quality of the soil, how the soil was ready to receive the word, and it is the same way with human hearts. Human hearts are soil that must be tilled and prepared to receive the word of the Lord. We prepare our hearts in advance to hear what God is asking us to do. So in order to receive the word, we have to prepare our hearts. And that's not to say that God can't reach us no matter what state our heart is in. God can absolutely reveal himself in any way that he pleases to any human heart. I absolutely believe that. But for us to go deeper into the word, to have a relationship with the word, it takes preparing our hearts to do that. And luckily, James gives us, gives us a very basic way and a clear way of preparing our hearts. He says we should be quick to listen, we should be slow to speak, and then we should be quick to anger. Are you listening? Okay, just wanted to check up on you. He says we should be slow to anger. Come on, people, we're awake this morning, right? If you're with me, say I am. I am. There we go. James gives us three really easy steps, um, and then a couple more as the verse goes on to how we can prepare our hearts practically to receive the word. Okay, so he says we should be uh, quick to listen and slow to speak. These two kind of go together, and here's how I kind of uh, logically chase this idea, is that we have been given two ears and one mouth, and so as a general rule, we should be listening twice as much as we are speaking. Here's why, because when we're speaking, we're not listening. And this is a trend that I absolutely see in my own life based on like, uh, the schooling that I had, the high school I went to, the university that I went to. I can absolutely see uh, this concept forming within me is that I don't listen to internalize what people are saying. I listen to respond. And now I could absolutely chase a rabbit hole about how social media hasn't helped with that in culture right now. I'm not going to chase it. Self-control. But... The idea is this, is that so much of how we interact with people today is listening to respond. It's listening to their opinion so that I can give mine. It's listening just to disagree. And that, as, as difficult as that is, is relationship with people, it is in a, a completely dangerous way to come to Scripture. It is, it is really a damaging attitude for us if we come to the Scripture not to hear it, but only to listen to respond. And in that way, we bring our own beliefs, our own standard, and we superimpose them over the pages of the Word. But see, if we're going to receive the Word of God, if we accept this as truth, the opposite 
has to happen. We allow this book to create our worldview, this book to shape our mindset, not the other way around. We don't bring our own culture and worldview in and put it over the pages and say, ah, well, I don't know if I agree with this because of the way I think. We allow this book to shape the way we view the world, to shape the truth of this world. This is the only truth that we can cling to. James also says that we should be slow to anger. He says, because human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Anger is like in the parable of Jesus, the parable of the sower. Anger is like the seeds that, that, were, that were planted around the bush and the thorns, and the thorns choke out the seed. Anger and human wrath choke the seed that is trying to grow within us as a result of the word. And that's because human anger and human wrath stand opposed to the righteousness of God. Only God's anger can be righteous because he can only be right, he can only be angry for the right reasons. We aren't good at that. We are always angry for the wrong reasons, especially when it comes to scripture. Because sometimes scripture offends us and it makes us angry in ways that we don't understand, but we know are convicting. And so human anger, human wrath stands opposed to the righteousness of God. And so in order to prepare the soil of our hearts, we have to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. But James also says that we need to get rid of the moral filth and the evil that distracts us from his word. And so I'm going to read verse 21 of James chapter 1 one more time for us just to, just to uh, renew that idea in our mind. It says, therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And so to, to continue this garden analogy, if our heart is a garden that we want to plant the seeds of the word of truth within, sometimes that means we have to do a little bit of weeding. Sometimes that means we have to till the ground a little bit. Sometimes we have to do some cleaning out of the garden in order for the fruit to be able to be produced and to grow. And what's really interesting is that the Greek word here for filth in verse 21, uh, James says to get rid of all moral filth. So that Greek word, uh, based on other writings of the day, we, we know that it's a reference to earwax of all things. That's the filth that he's talking about. And I don't think it's a coincidence at all. We might think that that's some grand connection, but I'm sure James meant that exactly that way. And at the time that he wrote it was that we have to get rid of the earwax in order to hear, right? And so in the same way, the sin in our life, the moral filth, emotional baggage, all the things that we carry with us that God says to let go of, all of those things, that distracts us from accepting and receiving the word, receiving truth in our life. Sin distracts us and makes it difficult to hear the word. But what's beautiful about this process of removing the moral filth in our lives, James is not saying that we have to go and get clean before we can come to the Lord. We have to go and, and do all the weeding and the gardening and then come back to the word and come back to the Lord. And that's actually also misconstrued. It's a misconception because it's the opposite of that. Let me read 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It says, if we confess our sin... God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, God enters the mess with you. He gets down in the dirt right next to you and pulls up the weeds right along with you, taking up the roots so that these things cannot return in your life. God is a part of the entire process. He is willing to get into the mud with you. He is so that you are able to receive the word. So practically, something we can try today um, in order to prepare our hearts to receive scripture, is something that I'm very intentional about, is praying before we read the word. Just like today, I asked the Lord that he would 
make us willing to hear and willing to understand and have willing hearts and open ears to what the word is saying. Simply praying that before you come to the word is valuable and it's practical and it helps shape uh, our attitude towards what God is trying to say to us. When we pursue him, we will find him. He's not hiding from us. So in our relationship with scripture, we receive the word by preparing our hearts. And the next step is a bit deeper. It's to meditate on it. We meditate on the word of the Lord. This is what James is talking about. And I know that that word has some taboo to it, and it means different things to different people. We'll talk about that as we go. But let me read uh, James chapter 1, verses 23 through 25 one more time for us. It says, Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, he goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person that he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, that person will be blessed in what he does. So let me ask you this morning, have you ever thought of this word as a mirror? Because a lot of the times we approach the word, you know, as a grab bag of spiritual one-liners. You know, we approach it as, as a love letter from Jesus, which in, in essence is a true statement, but can at times oversimplify what the word is trying to do for us. This word, James compares it to a mirror. And what is the purpose of a mirror? It's to evaluate what we look like. Now, if I were to be completely honest with you, uh, it takes a little while in front of the mirror to fix what's going on up here in the mornings, okay? Probably longer than I'm comfortable or willing to admit to you how long it takes to do my hair. But the point is this, is that for me to use a mirror in the morning to fix what's going on, it takes time. If I were to just glance at the mirror, that is setting myself up for a bad hair day, and I don't do that, okay? So, so using the mirror takes real time and intentionality, we can't just glance at the mirror. We forget. That's exactly what he's saying here, is that if we just simply glance at the mirror, we don't look intently into it and use it for its purpose, we will forget. We will walk away from it unchanged. If we do not uh, become intentional with the word and truly look into the mirror, then we become forgetful hearers, and truth comes in one ear, and it goes out the other, and we forget. We leave it behind. But James wants to help us understand how to cultivate the understanding of Scripture in our life. And so I'm going to use verse 25 for just a moment here. Oh, they've already got it up on the screen. Verse 25 here, there are like three mini principles within the principles of the principle of my sermon. And so we're going to walk through, through those real quick. And they're very simple because James is a practical guy and that's very helpful for us. So as we approach scripture, trying to gain understanding, we can see three principles in verse 25 here. And so I'm going to read it as we go. Verse 25, but the one who looks intently into the perfect law of, or sorry, but the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, pause, person who looks intently. In order to look intently, we study, right? So when we look intently into the word, we study it. We don't just remain on the surface level. We're willing to go deeper into what the word is actually saying. What are the connections here of, of, of certain scriptures to other scriptures? What, are, what is the author truly trying to say? We're willing to go deeper into the meaning of the words and of the scripture. We study it. We look intently into the perfect law of freedom. It says that person looks into, in, intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it. 
And this is where I get the idea of meditation on the word. When we persevere in the word, we continue in the word. We continue to study it. We continue to, to, to bring it with us. So meditation in, in the Bible, and that's a word that you hear a lot throughout the Psalms is, you know, I meditate on your word day and night. I meditate on your law. I love your law. We, we hear that language all the time. And, and for the Jewish people, the word meditate meant that it, it, the direct translation is to repeat uh, aloud quietly to yourself over and over and over and over again. That's what they knew as meditation. And so what you need to understand about the Jewish scriptures is, is people didn't have a codex like this uh, back in Bible times, okay? They didn't have an organized representation of, of Zephaniah and Matthew and Malachi and all these books put together. They had one like community group of scrolls, right, that they had to go to the synagogue to, to even read or see. That's how they got the word of God. And so in order to bring it with them, they had to meditate on it, right? They had to commit it to memory. They had to repeat it over and over and over to themselves until they understood it deep within their heart. They internalized the word. That's what we do when we meditate. We internalize the word. And so that means we bring it with us. So whether this Bible is with me or not, I bring the word of God with me because his truth is written on my heart because I've committed myself to it. And then the last part of verse 25 here, it says, uh, this person perseveres in, in the perfect law of freedom and is not a forgetful hearer, but one who does good works. This person will be blessed in what he does. We cannot be forgetful hearers. And so a simple, practical thing that I can uh, say to you today that I'm sure you've heard in church before is memorize scripture. Be willing to commit it to memory. If there is one thing that I can suggest to you is memorize the words of the man who gave his life for you. Memorize the words of Jesus. Commit those things to memories. That's to memory. That's how we learn what true love is. And so those are three very simple principles on how we approach scripture and grow in understanding of it. We study the word, we meditate on the word, we memorize the word. And once we receive it, okay, we begin to internalize it. We begin to memorize it, to practice it. And if we're willing to allow the garden to produce fruit, we begin to look more and more and more like Jesus. We are shaped more and more and more by God's perfect truth and less and less by earth and by the culture that is around us. And we're shaped more and more by the word as we continue to read in it. We, we understand the psalmist when he says that I delight in your word and not and, and that I have treasured it in my heart that I might not sin against you. We understand those things when we meditate on the word. We internalize it. We read it. We study it. We see the connections between the stories. We, we read it and we read it. We repeat it and repeat it day and night, day and night. And then something incredible about our relationship with the word happens. We realize as we allow the Bible to interpret itself, it is no longer us who is reading it. It is the Bible that begins to read us because we see it as a mirror. We begin to see ourselves in the pages and in the story. And I'm not talking about uh, uh, creating a character for yourself. Like I'm David, this problem is Goliath, and I'm going to sling my five spiritual stones at it. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is this, is that the story that we begin to see is something that we participate in. It is a story that Jesus is telling, that James is retelling, that we experience today. Because the word is reading us, it's a mirror to us. We find ourselves in the grand redemption narrative of forgiveness that Jesus brings to us. That's how our relationship grows. But there are times 
when as we continue to read the Bible as a mirror, when we continue to see it as a mirror, there are times where that becomes remarkably difficult. Because as we continue to look intently into the mirror, what do we see? The inconsistencies. We see the shortfalls. We see the sin that's in our life. That's what's reflected back to us. And that is the most difficult part of using Scripture as a mirror. Because it's hard to see that in ourselves. Most mirrors simply reflect what we are like on the outside, but the Word of God reflects who we truly are on the inside. The book of Hebrews says that God's Word detects the thoughts and intents and motives and the desires of our heart. But that's what brings us to the next step of our relationship with the Word. It inspires action within us. It inspires action. Scripture, as we continue to look into it as a mirror, it inspires action within us. James chapter 1, verse 22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Let me ask you this. What is the point or purpose of a mirror if we look into it and do nothing about it? What is the point of a mirror if we don't use it It is self-deception to read the word, claim to believe it, and not allow it to transform us. Gaining content is not spiritual maturity. The test of maturity is not knowledge, but character. God's end goal is building our character. And so I want to tell you another little story um, something that I used to do when I, so when I was in college, I lived in Texas for a year, and uh, I worked at a golf course. That's what I did. And so uh, I was just a cart boy, you know, I just, you know, cleaned and shined the carts, and I would get free golf out of that, and that was pretty great. So what would happen was, is there was, there was this coach who lived there, right, and he worked for the golf course, and he coached all the people who needed lessons, okay? There was this 12-year-old kid, and um, he was remarkably talented at golf, okay? He was like a homeschool kid. He was like, I don't want to go to high school because... Uh, His parents' goal was for him to be in school as little as possible and be on the golf course as much as possible. His goal is to play on tour one day, and uh, I was pretty convinced, even when he was 12 years old, that he might make it someday. And so what would happen is I would get to work a little bit early, and him and his coach would be like doing putting practice, okay? And so sometimes I would go and putt with them, see if I could learn something. What would happen, very rarely, because the kid was frustratingly good at golf for how young he was, uh, what would happen very rarely is as we, you know, we're putting, we're doing putting practice, I would end up a little bit closer to the pin than he would and maybe make a few more than he would. And like I said, this happened very seldomly. But the fact is this, if I beat him one time that day, he was not going to win for the rest of the day. And here's why. It's because his mental game was not at the level of his putting game, okay? His mental game was, was not great. And if you know anything about golf, your mental game is remarkably important. And so sometimes this boy would let his emotions putt for him, and that emotion was normally pretty angry. And so he would just sail past the hole, right? And so the idea is this, is that he had a, a, so much more knowledge about golf than I did, so much more knowledge about how it needed to, you know, how the green is sloped and all those things that I don't really care about. I just hit the ball, right? So, so his knowledge is not what made him a good putter, okay? It was the application of that. It was the wisdom that he needed to use from the knowledge that he had to actually put it into practice. And so as Christians, when we approach the word, the test of maturity is not your knowledge. It is your character. It's not about how many times the Bible has been. That, it's not about how many times you've been through the Bible. It's about how many times the Bible has been through you. So let me show you the first 
page of my book of James. So uh, if you can't see it, I'm sorry, but uh, I'll describe it to you. It looks like a unicorn threw up on it. Um, it's got green highlights and yellow highlights and a brown pen somewhere. I don't even know that I had a brown pen. The point is this. It's got purple and red and green and yellow, and that's all really cool and stuff, but it defeats the purpose. If I mark this book and it has not marked me, I can mark all I want to in this book, but if it hasn't transformed a thing about who I am and my life and how I'm pursuing the Lord, then it is barren knowledge, barren knowledge, barren soil, because it hasn't changed a thing about me. The knowledge that we gain from being a part of the story that God is telling is not made to be barren. The knowledge is made to show us a new humanity, a new way to live and to be. God's word inspires us to action. His word doesn't just cocoon itself inside of us. It begs to be used. It begs us to participate. So I want to end our time this weekend together by reading you a quote uh, from another pastor. His name is Aaron Stern, and he pastors north of here, way up north in Colorado. But he says this. He says, the Bible is not a book to be used, but a story to be entered. Scripture is all about Jesus, his work, and how we participate in it. God is calling you to participate in what he is doing today. Not just in these times, not just through James or whoever. Today, he is calling you into something and that, we can see that in our relationship with the word as we receive the word, as we meditate on the word, as it stirs us to action. God has a plan for that action. God has a purpose for that action. And so as we close today, I just simply want to ask you to reflect for a moment. What is God calling you to do? What is your relationship with the word truly doing in your life? Do you need to have a DTR moment with the word? Do you need to determine the relationship? If so, pray about it. Pursue it. Read it. Study it intently. Don't let go of the things that God is speaking to you. I'm going to have you bow your heads this weekend.